If you're looking to sell your private company's stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com equity. TechCrunch is back in San Francisco for our flagship event, Disrupt SF. We've got a fantastic lineup of startup and tech leaders on tap, like Snapchat's Evan Spiegel, Postmates' Bastian Lehman, Salesforce' Mark Benioff. Plus, you can experience an entire track of how-to content to help you grow your business. Hear from experts at Bumble, Fitbit, Uber, Goldman Sachs, YC, and more. Also, we'll be recording a very special episode of Equity right in the middle of Startup Alley. Get a ticket now and then come enjoy all the goodness. Early bird pricing ends tonight. And if you act now, you can save another 20% by using promo code equity. Just visit techcrunch.com slash disrupt SF. Hello, and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast. I'm TechCrunch reporter Kate Clark, and I'm joined by my co-host, editor-in-chief of Crunchbase News, Alex Wilhelm. How's it going, Alex? It's going uh, really well. We're still here in SF. We are in the studio, and uh, we have a cool guest with us. And We have a lot I, of LaCroix. We have a lot of LaCroix, and I have a large espresso. So oh, honestly, yeah. I've got all the ingredients I could possibly want at one time, so I feel, feel good. So let's um, do a warm welcome for our guest, Iris Choi, partner at Floodgate. Hi, Iris. Hi. How are you? Good, thanks. Thank you for joining us. Uh, for the second time, we mm-hmm. should say, mm-hmm. if you have been a longtime equity listener, last September, mid-September, I want to say, somewhere yeah. in there, uh, you were on the show. I was remote then, so this is the first time I think we're together. That's right. Um, but it just goes to show how old this show is now. Like, we actually, we've had a, a few repeat guests so far. It's well, nice. My hope is, though, by the time I'm in the five-timer club, that it'll mm-hmm. be like Saturday Night Live, Well, you guys will gift me a blazer with oh, like the yeah. logo of TechCrunch. We'll have to give you a plaque, a blazer and a plaque. Uh, we'll wait. work our way up. If I'm invited back for a third time, maybe I get a pen, then a coffee mug. <laughs> I like this idea. If I anyone gets you- a blazer, I think I think Kate and I should get the first two. And then, and then Chris. Anyways, um, we have a fun fact about you. This is a new tradition on the show. We have fun facts about each guest when they come on to humanize them, if you will, and make them more personable and so I'm less robotic than I exactly. am right now. Okay. Um, <laughs> So you uh, you used to know Krav Maga, which yeah. is an Israeli uh, martial art. That's right. And you made us correct that to new instead of no. Yes. I presume it's been some time. It is definitely I'm sure you been still some know time. time. I mean, I would hope that if in a case of emergency, the muscle memory comes over and I don't just roll up in a ball screaming. But I yeah. don't want to be tested on that. Probably don't want to be tested on that. But that's some great knowledge to have somewhere deep down. Yeah. Especially in San Francisco. Um, oh, increasingly so these days. Mm-hmm. You are at Floodgate. How long have you been there now? Uh, six and a half years now. I was basically the first partner to join Mike and Ann. They had been working on Floodgate for five years before I joined the team. So Floodgate is a um, seed stage fund mm-hmm. behind Lyft. What are some other big bets you guys have had? Twitter, Okta, TaskRabbit. We were early into the on-demand economy. I just spoke to Okta yesterday after earnings. Oh, nice. Yeah, I make the, they're one of my few calls I take after earnings each quarter because I like their perspective on uh, kind of late stage SaaS. That's fantastic. And now you spent nearly a decade in investment banking before yes. you went to VC. That's right. And you were at Goldman Sachs. That's right. And I'm what, actually 110 years old. Oh, gosh. <laughs> banking will age you. I was gonna, I yeah. mean, you do look tremendous for 110. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's good thing we have Well, again, it's San Francisco, you know, so we have to keep fit. I'm going vegan right now, so all those things. So but, not, not to... Not to start interviewing you, because I know Alex hates that, but what, what inspired the transition from uh, M&A investment banking to VC? Yeah, and so, you know, obviously at Goldman, we tend to work with later stage companies, mm-hmm. but I feel like I'm very culturally aligned with Seed. I like the concept of business building. I tend to be fairly risk averse myself as an individual, so the likelihood that I jump both feet into a startup is probably 
lower on the spectrum, but I love the fact there's also a portfolio approach, right? So I get to work with a bunch of different companies. I'm serving on probably seven boards right now and feel like I get all the benefit of being very hands-on in the early stages without having just placed one bet. Now we are going to uh, move past that and dive into the story that has been the most exciting. Yes. Uh, of the of really the month, I want to say this has been one of the best things we've seen ever. I was so happy. So Peloton filed, uh, released their IPO filing this week to the public. I was so happy that they did this this week because Burning Man is happening, <laughs> and there's nothing going on. It's a very slow week. I was pretty. I was actually sitting at my desk thinking, I'm bored. How often does that happen? I, never. Yeah. I, it never happens. I was I was actually in the middle of writing a story about how Jay-Z invested in Rihanna's startup. Oh. I never published it. Well, now you, you just broke your own embargo, by the way. <laughs> no, it's out. The news is out. I was just, I was bored. Okay, so Peloton revealed its IPO documents this week. They plan to raise $500 million on NASDAQ, and they will trade under the symbol Peton. So there were a ton of information we got out of this filing. I think Alex and I have been looking forward to getting a much closer look at Peloton's financials for a long time which we will dive into that. But for those of you who are not familiar with Peloton, um, it is a maker of internet-connected stationary bikes and treadmills. So the stationary bikes run for like, I don't know, 2200 bucks, I think. Give or take. The treads are about $4,500. What? It's twice as much? They are, yeah. Yes, they are very expensive. Um, and they've only been out for about a year, right? 2018 yes. is when they started shipping them. Exactly. And uh, Peloton makes a bunch of money additionally by charging a subscription to its media platform of on-demand workout videos. Yeah, it's, uh, $39 a month, I think. Exactly. So um, do you want to run through really quick, just their a quick look at their revenue and losses? Yeah. So I love how you didn't say profits there because you just cut to the chase. The spoiler <laughs> alert, uh, they don't make money. Yeah. It is a 2019 IPO and traditionally they don't make money. We don't money. talk about profits on the show. Zoom went public with like $8 in profits and we were all very impressed. We were. But that was the, the exception. All right. So uh, two main revenue categories, connected fitness products and subscription. This is just hardware and software effectively. Uh, the company grew from $350 million in hardware rev to $719 in the most recent year. And oh, most recent fiscal year, I should say. Their fiscal year ends June 30th uh, of each calendar year. And their software revenue went from 80.3 80, 80 to 181. So their total rev went from 435 to 915, which you will note is more than 100% mm -hmm. uh, growth at scale, which is very impressive. Once you kind of break that nine-figure revenue mark, it's hard to keep growing at such a high percentage basis. Uh, Peloton uh, paid for it, though. They spent a bunch more money on sales and marketing. Going back to their fiscal year ending June 30th, 2018, they spent $151 million on sales and marketing. That jumped to 324.0 in the most recent fiscal year. So they more than doubled their sales and marketing. Spend. Right. So they're really doubling down on sales and marketing, which makes sense, especially considering that they've expanded their portfolio of products. Like you said, introduced the tread. I'm sure more to come. Yeah, but the result of this is that the company went from a, a decreasing net loss to a skyrocketing net loss. Uh, so in their last three fiscal years, they lost 71, 48, and then 196. So they more than quadrupled their net loss while just more than doubling their revenue. I think that there's a couple of interesting things, though. One is just the sheer scale of the business, which I don't know many people who haven't invested in them that would have been able to guess just the sheer magnitude, right? Um, obviously, at Floodgate, we're very early stage. And I feel like had we, I don't think that we saw Peloton. I think he predated me joining the team. But had we, I suspect we would have really w wondered what is the TAM here, right? It feels like a luxury product. It's really niche, meant for the 1% of the 1%. And yet you look at it and, it and it's everywhere. It's not just a New York, Bay Area, LA type of product. So it's very impressive what they've built. I also think it's interesting that even though they started off saying we have custom hardware 
And then we're going to do a holistic platform by which we have our proprietary content that we stream. Then they opened up that platform by saying you can also just stream alongside of us in an app that is cheaper, right? And so if you want to do boot camp or treadmill, but you just happen to be at a gym instead of our actual branded treadmill, that they're opening up that community Mm -hmm. and using that as uh, a way to hook people and then ideally convert them over. Yeah. So in total, including some of the people who are just using the app, they have 1.4 million community members, which is huge. I mean, and a huge and growing number. And I think part of Peloton that people sort of underestimate maybe in the VC world is just how attached people have become with the instructors. And that's something that I'm really, I wish I had a Peloton so I could like relate to this cult, but I can't. And they have, they have only 29 instructors, which I was very interested to learn from the S1. And these are people who, you know, of course are paid to create on-demand content for the, for the viewers and the viewers get extremely attached and will come back and pay these monthly uh, fees to be in, contact with these wonderful instructors. So I love that you brought that up Mm -hmm. because I was actually looking for that in the S1. If it was going to be a risk was concentration around certain instructors because what I was hoping they would disclose and I'm sure they have the reasons for not doing it is of all the classes that are streamed does a disproportionate percentage uh, get associated with just one instructor. So for example, amongst yeah. my friend groups, a lot of us will do all the classes that Ali Love does. And part of it is that she does Tabata, which is, you know, the 20 seconds on, 10 seconds off. So a little bit intense. But then some of her rides are more like, this is what's happening in pop music today, right? So very easygoing. And so they do try to have fairly distinct personalities as the instructors and the classes themselves. And so there was the question of, oh, is there a flight risk if one instructor who's kind of the anchor then decides to leave and go to a different platform? Not that that means that people will necessarily churn, but there may be a drop off in engagement. But unfortunately, I don't think they disclose any of those types of details. They didn't have much information about instructors in the S1. I was searching for as many keywords I could think of that would be related to that. And I wasn't finding, I thought there would be a lot more kind of uncovered, but. Yeah. Well, turning uh, back to the number side Mm -hmm. of this, one thing that I was really fascinated by was the margins the company had, because I think we all kind of expected that the software margins would be very high and the uh, hardware margins would be very kind of low, like probably sell the hardware at cost Mm -hmm. and they make a lot of money off the classes. Uh, We were wrong. I mean, both have about a gross margin of 43%, give or Mm -hmm. take. So the company is, uh, interestingly enough, much healthier in terms of its hardware gross margin than I would have guessed. Um, maybe that de-risks a little bit of what you're talking about in terms of the uh, the software flight risk. Yeah. But the churn numbers in the S1 weren't exactly clear. Right. right. So, so Peloton refers to itself, and you guys can jump in, but like as a media company, a hardware company, a logistics company, uh, like what it, it's, I think it, there was like 11 different yeah. things. So to, what do you guys think? Like what, if you were to pick one, what do you see it as first and foremost? Oh gosh, it's so hard to say because obviously like the banker in me is like, what's the comp group, right? How are we going to value this? And I've heard some people say, well, really, if you're talking about someone who's created a platform but started with hardware but almost has their own OS and you're really talking about something like Apple. Um, The difference being that I think with Apple, you have to keep investing in the hardware to be able to benefit from the ecosystem that gets built once you're hooked. Um, Versus, you know, Peloton, I have one of the earlier generation bikes. And so I got the notification that anybody else who bought around the time would have saying, hey, we're no longer going to support the touchscreen. So you have to swap that out. I don't know if that's something that'll happen on a regular basis as they continue to upgrade their tech. But otherwise, once you buy a treadmill or a Peloton, bike, I don't know that you'll ever actually need to get in another one. So it's very different than like the iPhone, the iPad, you know, obviously you can buy multiples, um, but I don't know how likely that is to be versus the lifetime value really is probably going to be captured via the subscription service. They don't spend a lot of money on R&D because uh, hearing you say that, I was curious, you know, do they spend a ton of money developing bike improvements or the new treadmill? Uh, they spent about $55 million 
an R and D in their last fiscal uh, year, which is you know less than a sixth of what they spent on sales right. and marketing, and about a fourth of what they spent on G and A. Uh, and that doesn't seem to be much. I mean, they could probably double that and not lose their shirts. I think also one more thing I want to talk about before we move on um, to another topic is also just how many companies Peloton has inspired in the fitness tech space. I think um, a lot of people were very skeptical of Peloton early on, kind of like you, you said about Floodgate would have been had you looked. It wasn't easy for Peloton to raise venture capital. And so since they've kind of proven that there is a huge appetite here, at least among consumer, amongst consumers for fitness tech, we've seen a lot more entries there. So like Mirror comes to mind, which I think pitched last year at Disrupt and has raised lots of money since then. That's um, a company that has created a smart mirror that you put, install in your home and then work out with it. Um, we made fun of that on the show. We've made fun of it, yes. <laughs> we made fun of it because like you, you mentioned, these are luxury items yeah. and it is difficult to imagine normal people being able to afford them. I mean, that's why I don't have one because they're thousands of dollars. I think though there's a smartphone comparison here again. Like I, I, I recall when when uh, Apple announced the iPhone, Steve Ballmer at Microsoft was like a thousand dollars for a phone. That's insane. No mm -hmm. one's ever going to be able to afford one. And now they are just kind of thought of as as a utility as a utility thing that you need to have. And I think I think health is getting closer to that. I don't know if it's as uh, well valued in our society as communication is because that's now a ubiquitous requirement. But um, the fact that like Kate and I have both been very tempted to buy one of these is is I think I'm going to get one one day. <laughs> Soon, probably. Just uh, just go talk to AOL. Or sorry. Oh, no, Verizon Media Group. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long history. Just bleep that out, please. Am I going to ask them to buy me one? No, just ask them for a huge raise and then use that. Ah, okay. Yeah, that's that's the plan. That's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. So you heard it here first. Kate is now promoted. Um, <laughs> but it's also interesting because when you look at the numbers in the S1, it's not only the scale, the number of people that have one and then subscribe to the digital service. It's the level of engagement. I want to say that the average Peloton user is riding it three to four times a week. So it really has become probably a replacement for their gym membership. Or if in the case of me, now that it's in my home, I probably use it more than I would have ever made it to a gym. Totally. And that's exactly why I want one. I think that's why they have such great retention rates and people, you know, people seem to love their Pelotons. I think, you know, we live in a bubble here in, in the tech center of the world. So I come across more Peloton users than I'm sure I would most places. But yeah. when I do, people have tons of stories about they the instructors. About yeah, it. I mean, and that's how I came to find out the instructors were so pivotal to crucial to the whole thing is because people are always talking about their Peloton instructors. I so mean, we've all been to SoulCycle at least once and we've yeah. seen I've never been to it, but. Most of us have been to SoulCycle at least once at this table, and you can see the impact that a teacher has on the, how the class feels, yeah. how motivated you are, yeah. and so to me, it's a direct corollary between a proven model we've seen in the real world and this working in digital space. And by the way, we kind of, since you broached the topic of SoulCycle, we kind of have to note the fact that SoulCycle pulled their IPO, right? And at that was the, two years ago? Yes, and at the time, the rumor was, is this because Peloton's numbers are dramatically larger than theirs. And so why be a public company if once you start trading, your competitor is going to come out with stronger numbers? Now, whether or not that's true or not, I guess we won't know because I don't know that we saw actual numbers from SoulCycle before they pulled their IPO. But it's just interesting to remember. Let's, uh, let's move on from Peloton and talk about uh, some other stuff coming down the pipe on the IPO front. So if you're like me, there's been enough S1s lately that you're a little bit confused and you could use a bit of a guide. So I wrote myself a guide so I would be less confused. So I'm going to quickly run through these in order based on the most oldest filings. We'll start okay. with the Wii Company and then we'll kind of move forward in time. So The Wii uh, Company. They actually How legally, dare you call it the Wii Company? They legally changed their name. <laughs> therefore, I cannot impishly call them WeWork anymore just to get their goat. So the Wii Company, a.k.a. WeWork, filed on August 14th. We've beat this horse to death. Um, I don't think we have much more to add at this point, except for unless Iris, if you have a hot take on WeWork, 
uh, we would love to hear it. I think it's fascinating how many we work similar companies have fundraised off of the or timing wise, very similarly timed to when the filing happened, especially given the filing was not necessarily flattering. Right? I think a lot of people read the S1 and are expecting it to be a bomb of an IPO, Alex. <laughs> I think everybody. I mean. yeah. um, and obviously fundraising takes a while. So it's not as if, oh, the S1 filed and now we're going to announce a fundraising round. But it's just interesting to see how optimistic people continue to be about this business model. Yep. Growth uh, is always intoxicating and it's investor catnip. And WeWork does have a ton of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving ahead to August 15th, Cloudflare filed. Uh, Cloudflare was a pretty solid company, not as hard to value, pretty easy to get our hands around, kind of the back end of the internet. And the talking points for this were mostly their discussion about uh, what should be on the internet mm-hmm. and their um, their unwanted role as a gatekeeper of what can often be seen um, online. Again, another company I think we kind of get, but another big offering coming up. It's a multi-corn, Kate. It's worth like $3 billion or something. $3.25 billion. $3.25 billion, And probably shooting for a higher valuation, I presume. So that'll be coming up uh but it won't be. It'll be fine because we'll understand it, and it won't be like the week. It'll company. be. It'll be fine. I mean, it, 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 it's. It's It will company. be fine. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, and then Smile Direct Club was August sixteenth. That was a very busy week of S one. Teledentistry. That is that is the entire it's my favorite point. word. Why is that your favorite word? It's stupid. It's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is Equity, the positivity show where we love <laughs> all things and don't mock anything. Um, Smile Direct Club, not really a tech company per se, more of a D2C kind of brand. But the reason why we talk about it on this show is that it raised about $380 million, including from Kleiner and Spark. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of competition in this space, I feel. I'm surprised that one company got to be this big. Uh, so quickly. Yeah, there are a lot of startups. But especially given that they're not uh, getting the support of like the dental association, right? No, not at all. And that's the thing. There's actually a lot of controversy. Um, we have a writer here at TechCrunch, Megan, who um, is just on top of the dentistry beat. And she was talking <laughs> about that. They're, they are not getting supportive dentists. So I don't know. Maybe everyone should be a little skeptical. Does Megan uh, think that's problematic? So Megan's dad is a dentist. So she has insider knowledge. Okay, or insider bias, depending. Insider bias, yeah. Megan has her own podcast, so she can take shots back at us <laughs> if she wants to. Uh, moving on, Ping filed on August 23rd, so getting more recent to today. Um, this is a company that was picked up by Vista Equity Partners for like 600 and is now going to go out at a multi-billion dollar valuation. And Iris, you were saying before the show that like, oh, they've done it again. Right. So this is, this is their MO, right? This yeah. is how they make... Here's a better question. Why can't other people do this? Well... I think that some people have, for example, with Chewy, right? There was very little time in my mind that passed between when it was a venture-backed exit to a private equity company and then they they took it public maybe 12 months later. And so I think that um, people are able to do both the financial engineering with Vista. They take a great amount of pride in saying they have a playbook where it's about operational excellence as well, not just about leading on debt and then taking out equity. Um, I think that... The part that's interesting to me is the more recent examples of this, like um, including Chewy, the scale, again, where it's in the billions of dollars. It's one thing to take a company that's maybe a family-owned business in the traditional sense of private equity and maybe put in more operational efficiencies when it's in the hundreds of millions. But to take companies that are already valued in billions and then extract more value is really impressive. And consistently just not making a mistake and doing it again and again. I mean, every time I see their name, it's a success. I can't recall the last time I read Vista Equity and failure, mistake, loss. And, you know, it's it's still a risky business theoretically. So it should be... It's an impressive track record. And I think part of it is that for them, they are very narrowly focused on software companies. So a lot of private equity firms these days, even if you are tech focused, you may have many verticals. So Mm -hmm. maybe that bleeds into telecom or storage. And for them, it's really... 
enterprise SaaS is one of their sweet spots, but software broadly. Yeah. And then uh, this brings us to our last company, also in the software space, Datadog, uh, which is a New York company. Everyone in New York wants everyone else to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, filed also late August. And I don't have a huge opinion about them. I think they were worth six hundred. I don't either. Forty million. But they have a very cute logo. Oh, they do. What is the logo? Uh, if you can't uh, see this, I'll oh. describe it for you. It's a dog in Yahoo purple. And uh, <laughs> say every episode you say Yahoo is like you. You have to say it, don't you? Sorry, I apologize. I'm Cut sorry. that out. Yahoo <laughs> is it Yahoo. Yahoo. Anyways, it's a cute dog in in Marissa Mayer purple, if you mm-hmm. will, and it's quite tremendous. Um, and then that tack on the, uh, the most recent IPO we just talked about, Peloton, and you have the whole list. Yeah, and actually, a lot of the companies that you just listed and that we've talked about are New York companies because Datadog, WeWork, and Peloton. Those are three New York companies. I don't know the other HQs, Cloudflare's around here. Cloudflare is like Cloudflare. six blocks. Smile that Direct way. Club. Smile Direct Club is based in Tennessee. Oh, interesting. Oh. Which makes it a, well, according to Crunchbase data, at least, and, and uh, that makes it a very uh, abnormal company in a way. That's mm-hmm. I love seeing companies that are not from here yep. or there yeah. do well, like Chicago, Utah, Austin. Even, I'm hearing stuff about a rally lately, which is shocking yeah, to same. me. North Carolina, I didn't realize that was going to be a hot place as well. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Don't forget, this episode is brought to you by Shares Post. All right, well, let's keep going on, Kate. What's next? So just a quick little hit here on Instacart. Um, the company's chief financial financial officer and chief operating officer, one man, two titles, is leaving the company for Sequoia. So he's going to become a partner on the Sequoia's growth stage team. Not sure what his focus will be other than that he'll be writing really big checks. And they have promoted someone internally to fulfill the CFO role. Clearly an important role, especially considering it could be going public next year. If you're interested in learning some specifics, you can go read the story on TechCrunch. But yeah, I mean, I think it's just interesting to see a really important high-level executive kind of making the leap over to Sequoia, which is obviously one of the most storied for firms in Silicon Valley, quote. Yeah, I also feel like we've heard less from Instacart in the last 12 months than at any other time in their history. And given that they're the largest they've ever been, that almost feels surprising unless they're just out there executing and it's going well. Sure, maybe. I mean, they could be quiet because they're preparing for an exit or for an IPO. I Um, hope so. So they they last raised, and I think it was December, and they raised at about an $8 billion valuation. Sorry, it was October. So it's been almost a year, and they raised $600 million at a $7.6 billion valuation. And Uh, there was such a focus on them post uh, Amazon's acquisition of Whole Foods, right? There there was. Many people saying this is the death of Instacart. How could they have been delivering to Whole Foods? And, of course, they came out and said Whole Foods was never that big a portion of our revenue, and they've proven their ability to fundraise and execute post that partnership. Yeah, the narrative the, the narrative has definitely changed. And I mean, when I talked with the CEO like a year ago, he, I asked if they were going public soon and he said, it will be on the horizon, which means... So that means at some point <laughs> it will be considered? Which is, I, I thought that was a hilarious quote and I was reminded of it when I was writing this story this week. I was like, oh yeah, what a, that's the most, that's the least straightforward answer <laughs> I've ever heard. That, yeah, that's, don't say that if you get so, a chance. I mean, it could be next year. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, we're looking at 2021. But point being, if you're a company like Instacart, you need a CFO. So it's, I bet you they they sort of, uh, like you mentioned before we taped, they groomed him internally. He, he's now um, taking over the ranks of that position. And uh, this other guy is out the door and into Sequoia. Yeah, but he was formerly at KKR, so it all kind of fits together in yep. terms of his career arc. Okay, uh, moving on. Let's talk about some smaller rounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, going from the largest to the late to now the early. We're doing this entire show in reverse. It's the Benjamin Button episode, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kleiner has put money into a thing called Consider, uh, and Lucas wrote the story for TC. Um, Kate, why why is this catching our eye? 
So Kleiner Perkins has invested in a company that has created a corporate email service for startups. I know for me, I was interested because there is a sunrise lately of companies cropping up to specifically cater to other startups. I think Brex was sort of like a leader in this category. YC has had companies do that for a long time. Given the success of Brex and having its customers be startups, um, we've seen more of that. And then that on top of the fact that email services and productivity tools are raising more VC than ever. I mean, we've seen superhuman raise a bunch of cash with Superhuman is a um, expensive email service, if you will. Well, it's expensive and it's cheap. I mean, if you use it, a lot of email for work, $30 a month is not an insane amount of money. But if you pay $0 for email, $30 is a lot of money. So in the article, it says um, the bulk of this functionality is possible inside of stock Gmail with the right filters, but it's all pretty messy and people generally will pay for an interface that is built to be effective. So that's essentially what it's doing. It's like another layer. And that's also what super, Superhuman is doing is build another layer to make... And again, if it makes you more efficient, people, Superhuman has shown that people are willing to pay for that. I know that with the Superhuman onboarding process, that they encourage you to get your company to reimburse you for the cost of it. But in the meantime, I know lots of people were willing to pay out of pocket. And again, $30 a month is not cheap. And I don't know that there's been examples of other software that's meant for business functions that people are willing to pay $360 out of a year. Uh, out of their own pocket versus expecting their company to provide it for them. But I mean, email is like the biggest problem you have. Like, I mean, I'm sure it is for you. Yeah. It's, it's, it's for us. I'm constantly drowning in it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't even do a good job anymore at all. I just do a kind of a regular crappy job and that's my, my middle point. So I think if you, if I could give money mm-hmm. to have better email solutions, so I feel less guilt and yeah. I, I make less, fewer people angry with me. I mean, honestly, that's cheap. But wait, do you have superhuman? No, I've almost signed up for it like twice. Okay. Yeah. So then, yeah, you should sign up. Sounds um, like you. Yeah, I could. Want yeah, I, I should do that, but I, I mean, there's like been ten thousand other things I've been doing. I mean, <laughs> and plus, that money could go towards a Peloton. Uh, <laughs> That's true. That's interesting way to think about it. Or ten dollars more, and then you can do the digital <laughs> subscription with your Peloton. This, this is a brutal like trade off. Also, it makes me feel like I'm even more in the bubble than I thought. Um, anyways, I think this is neat. I think people will use it, and it's cool to see more money being put into products that are not free. So I think we've all learned uh, the cost of free in the last, uh, especially twenty four months. I feel like. We better understand the privacy trade-offs and uh, how companies are willing to use your data in ways that you may not like. So I would be more than happy to pay for stuff like this. Yeah. I'm curious, though, what do you think it means that there are more companies that are starting that are catering to startups? Because one of the lessons learned from the bubble bursting back in 2000 was a lot of the companies who had been selling into other companies that were affected by the downturn were really penalized, and some of them, or most of them, had to shut down at that point. And do you feel like the... The fact that Brex has done so well and there was so much money that was willing to back it is a reflection of the fact that it's been a while since people have had to get over the trauma of would you want to invest in a company that for whom the success rate for their customer base is fairly low. It's kind of like, you know, if you invest in a company that caters to SMBs, you need to do it knowing that, what is it, like 50% of restaurants shut down within the first three years. Right. Startups do fail and most of them do fail. So it's extremely risky. And I think that's something people bring up with Brex frequently. Mm -hmm. I think though that it's a little bit different this time because at a minimum, the startups that we're seeing are much more focused on revenue generation than the uh, the 1999, 2000 class. Um, and I, I also think that what we're seeing via the, what's the buzz phrase, the consumerization of enterprise, That's right. uh, we're seeing these trends, these kind of secular shifts that you'd want to see play out. And also I think the startups are essentially trendsetters and all these companies that are now catering to startups do want to go up market. Mm-hmm. They will build enterprise features and they will have good mind share among uh, individual workers when they do so. The question is, can they get all that done before the economy turns and they get punched squarely in the face? 
I don't know, but it's a, it's a risk that I can at least see the upside on if mm -hmm. things go well. Now, with the current, uh, how can I phrase this, trade climate mm -hmm. and the jitters in the stock market, to me, it looks increasingly risky. It looks different than it did six months ago, but I, I like it. And if I was in your shoes, uh, I wouldn't be afraid of the idea of investing into it. Right. I think you're right that there are structurally reasons why it's different this time around versus what the startup community and environment looked like back in 99, 2000. And then there's also the very big factor, which is timing is everything in these types of markets. Yeah, but the the, the other example about startups and selling to them has been WeWork historically. People yes. say, you know, you're signing long-term leases and Absolutely. you're, you're going to be paid by short-term leases. That worries me a lot more than Brex because Brex can just reduce its size and footprint. Mm -hmm. WeWork has long-term leases. It's a bit more trapped in its cost structure than I think other companies can be if they're willing to be ruthless in a downturn. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't see why Brex has to die if everything falls apart. Right. And Brex is expanding and trying to cater to Fortune 500 companies. Yes. And there's a whole, whole, whole lot more going on there. And, and that's what and that these other companies will as do. Well, right? Yes. And all these companies that are startup to startup can expand mm -hmm. and to have more reliable customers. But I think we're seeing a lot of companies begin by catering to startups. And a lot of that has to do with YC. It's because they are YC companies selling to YC companies and then they just sort of like build off of that. That's how YC companies always have 500% revenue growth in the last three weeks. They all just sign each other as customers. They have 1,000 week over week growth. 1,000% week over week I know, growth. but it's adorable at Five demo Five million day. percent. <laughs> because I'm not paying at a $15 million cap for these companies, so it doesn't really offend me. I think it's cute. Um, but I, I get if you're paying the prices for them, that can seem a bit excessive and uh, almost a bit gamed. Um, anyways, one more thing, uh, one more round, I mean, Kate, is yes. Inkit. Is that how you pronounce that, do you think? Inkit? Yeah, so I'm guessing it's Inkit. It is a Berlin-based startup that's raised a $16 million round. We're talking about this because this is another Kleiner Perkins round. So we sort of threw in two rounds from KP this week. Um, this is a crowdsourced publishing platform that creates mini episodes. Do you want to give a better explanation? Because this is kind of a weird one. Yeah, imagine like short form fiction serialized. I mean, one thing that we talk about a lot, uh, well, not on the show, but kind of out in the world is the death of attention spans. And, you know, I'm shocked that people listen to 30 minutes of equity. Like, I mean, that's a lot of equity. We say a lot of words in 30 minutes. So Inkit, I think, caters to a generation of people who want to read and write in a shorter format. Right. And they, I mean, they have certainly made progress. They have 1.6 million readers who are um, digging this new model, 110,000 writers who have uploaded 350,000 stories. They say they have a run rate of $6 million from a new bite-sized immersive reading app. It launched early this year, and it's called Galati? Galati? Sure. Um, <laughs> I want to point out that the $6 million run rate is pretty cool. Like, I mean, fiction and writing is not the easiest thing to monetize, even if you're a well-known author selling a book. So to come up with something that's a bit off the wall um, is fantastic. I love, I have a big soft spot for like medium and this sort of thing that yes, emphasizes absolutely. the written word because... It is what I get paid to do mostly. And also, I just think that it's, uh, you know, I want to see all the encouragement possible to get more people to spend more time reading uh, as I can. So. Well, the other part I think is interesting about the business model or what little I know mm -hmm. of it is it felt very interactive, meaning that the reason why they say it's crowdsourced is because they'll put out snippets or early versions and they get feedback from community members and then writers will iterate based on that feedback. So you end up being able to, it's almost like a choose your own adventure book, right? You get to influence what the novel or the novella, I guess, or the snippet will be like before you opt to actually subscribe and read it. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually just pulled up the website and it sounds like it also comes with sound and visual effects. So that that, that actually yeah. is very, very interesting. So it's it's um it's not like it's dumbed down work. It's immersive, um, mobile first content, which I could see why, like I think we mentioned before the show, uh, the new generation Gen, Gen Z, would probably take two very, very quickly. Yeah, I mean, if we, if we can get more of Gen Z to spend time reading and instead of watching TikToks, it's probably going to be a, a net benefit. And I don't even say that sarcastically. I mean, I spend way too much time looking at dumb crap on the internet too. And so right. if this will encourage me to read more, 
it's going to be good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we brought up these two KP rounds because um, I helped write a story this week about KPs. We figured we'd, we'd talk about it. I, I only have a couple of things I want to hit on. Uh, one is which, uh, so KP's latest fund is their 18th, I think. It's $600 million. And their preceding fund, KP17, was, I think, $440 million. And they deployed that entire fund in, like, I think it was, like, 18 months. And I was trying to get a, a wow. handle around how fast they were investing KP18, um, the newest fund, which is larger. And they said about the same pace. Wow. So to me, what this tells me and what I wanted to find out was how much opportunity are they seeing in the market today at the early-ish stage? Because Kleiner's around the Series A level, mm-hmm. not super early, not super late. And to me, to have them sit there and talk about how excited they were about uh, what they're seeing in the market was fascinating because this late in a, a bull cycle or a, a strong market that we've seen, you think we'd be kind of running short of ideas or companies to invest in or, or places to deploy money. That's that won't mature for six years, like these Series A deals will. But no, they, their enthusiasm seemed unfeigned and they seemed very serious about what they're seeing out there. So I'm kind of curious from your perspective, do you share their because you're on the seed side, so yeah. a little bit before. Yeah. Are you seeing a similar number of, of good ideas, things to be excited about, and stuff that you're excited to put money into? Yeah, we continue to be really bullish about the opportunities at seed. If anything, you know, I feel like there is a little bit of a competitive dynamic that the really good companies may have the option to go straight to A, so to a company like Kleiner. And so we really emphasize to them that if you are a seed stage company, regardless of how much you can raise, you should really be partnering with seed investors because we like to think of ourselves as your partner in the company building process. It's not just about the capital. But we continue to see a ton of great opportunities out there, and we continue to be really excited by working with these founders. Okay. And then I want to talk about how much money there is at the Series A stage, mm-hmm. because one thing we've heard about off and on for a half decade, I want to say, is the Series A crunch. Right. And to me, this has been a manifestation of essentially every round getting moved back one. So like seed is now A and Series A is now B. So the old maturity metrics you'd have to hit to make a Series A kind of work don't fit anymore. But Kleiner's going to put 70% of this new fund to work at the Series A stage. So mm-hmm. it's a bunch of money they're deploying there. Are you seeing companies that you've put in money to the seed stage graduate at a similar higher or lower rate to an A than before? I think we see them. We've been very lucky in that we see most of our companies transition from C to A. But I agree with you that the size of the A's has grown, as has the side of the C's, mm-hmm. right? I mean, again, when kind of Mike often references that when he got started, the thesis was the 500,000 is the new 5 million. And so, and he didn't even necessarily have 500,000. So he would have to get Steve Anderson, Josh Koppelman to put in money alongside him. And these days, 5 million is a non-surprising seed round. And that used to be an a. Right. And that's changed really quickly. I yes. mean, you just even this year, I think, uh, I think a year ago, we still would have been like $5 million seed. But at this point, like th- one or two a week. Mm-hmm. Easy. Yeah. To the point, it's, it's the not even normal. remarkable. Right. And not it's not all. considered you are going to straight to A instead of an outsized seed until it's in the 10 million plus range. And again, a lot of that is a reflection of the A funds themselves getting quite large and so wanting to deploy capital much more quickly. And so then their expectation to justify the valuation you'd have to back into is going to require much more traction at that stage. Yeah, I mean, Kleiner picked up, you know, 160 million more in this fund and they want to write larger checks and probably to the same number of companies. Mm-hmm. So uh, we are dramatically over time. <laughs> yes. So yes. Let's close to- out. Um, thank you guys both. It was a great episode and we'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye. 
You can find us on Twitter at Alex and at Kate Clark Tweets, or you can email us at equitypod at techcrunch.com. And we are now on YouTube. Watch the full episode on the TechCrunch YouTube page. And if you really want to support the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes. And you can also subscribe to our podcast on Spotify and all the other places where you get podcasts. And a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, and we will see you all right here next week. They're going to trade under the tickle ticker. <laughs> start start again. You're perfect. It's going to be good. The tickle symbol. That would make everything so much more fun. No, not. Chris, it's like if we had a Sesame Street version of an IPO. Chris, do you want me to? people on the, uh, at, at the NASDAQ on the floor. I don't, oh, I don't have a tickle fight with them. Chris, do you want me to just like restart? Yeah, let's start at the top. Okay. Okay.